0: Why don't you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word? We're hearing God speak to us directly through His Word. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 41. If you need a Bible, you have a Pew Bible there. Turn to page 627 and listen to the reading. Of God's word. This passage is the fulfillment of Jesus's promise. Upon this rock I will build my church. So let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 2 verse 14 through 41. But Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned unto darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord." And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, And my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, And his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. And his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, be, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having pr- received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool.'" Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and uh, and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled at the reading of your word and how it shows to us how you will build your church. Upon the preaching of the gospel, the profession of faith, the identification with you as the crucified, buried, and risen Lord, we are your people. And so as your people, we're here to hear from you. And so we pray that you would use what our pastor has studied and what he has prepared, that you would speak through him and through him to our hearts so that we as a body would be more aligned with you. I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, that has not yet called out to you for salvation, that you would work in their hearts, draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ, and today would be their day to stand and identify with you. Father, I pray for all of us that we would have gospel conviction and the boldness to share as the 12 did on this day thousands of years ago, that we would continue that process through this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Life. Life is uh, full of firsts. There's your first job, there's your first car, there's your first house, there's your first child perhaps, your first girlfriend that then led to your first kiss. There's your first time to ride a bike, there's your first time to jump off a high dive, there's your first time to fly in an airplane, perhaps there's even your first time to ride on a roller coaster. There are all kinds of firsts in life. How many remember your first job? Yeah, okay, you can go back. How many remember your first car? That's a little more emotionally tied. My first car was a 1985 Mazda 323, and it was a bad car. At least I thought it was. It was a light blue, two-door hatchback, four-cylinder. My very first car, my dad took me to go buy it at a used car lot right down here. I made car payments, $100 a month for four years while I was in college on that car. I was proud of that car. In fact, uh, my first job was working for an individual in our church who happens to be sitting right here, Mr. Willard Cornett. Mr. Willard Cornett was so generous, he paid me $1.50 an hour. Back when I was in sixth and seventh grade, I worked for him. $2 an hour, I got a raise somehow. It was a glorious job, I thoroughly did. One of the bonuses of that job was I got to stay and eat dinner. And let me tell you, Mrs. Cornett, Betty, as we know her, makes a wonderful dinner. I still have fond memories of those times, of my first job, my first car. Well, today, we're going to look at a first. We're going to look at Peter's very first sermon as we continue in our worship series through the book of Acts, a worship series, as you see on these posters here, that we're calling Unstoppable, Daring to Be the Church on Mission. The other day, I heard about a student in Bible college who preached his very first sermon, that happened to be on the topic of Zacchaeus. And so he stood before the class and said, Zacchaeus was of little stature. So am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree. So am I. Zacchaeus came down. So will I. And with that, he sat down in the sermon. Three points. It was short, it was brief. Now, Peter's first sermon here was not that short. And it was certainly given with much more conviction and with much more courage. Remember, Peter was first in everything. He was first when mentioned among the other disciples. He was first on the water. He was oftentimes first with his mouth. He was first with his sword. And he was the first to boast, Lord, even if others leave you, I will never leave you. And now here in Acts, Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his very first sermon. Sermon. In fact, this section in Acts that we're looking at today is the first of many sermons. The first of 15 sermons recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. Many of them are given by the Apostle Paul. One of them is by James. Another one is by Stephen. And the rest are by this guy here by the name of Peter, which we can relate to so well. This first sermon is really only a summary of what Peter actually said. It took Pastor Chris here, a little less than five minutes to read Peter's entire sermon. And as much as some of you might be thinking in your minds right now, Luke is not advocating the benefits of a five-minute sermon. Anybody wish he was? No, he's not. After all, if you go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40, Luke tells us that there were many, many more words... Many other words in Peter's sermon that Luke did not record for us. So what we have here is simply a summary of what Peter gave in his first, summary, his first sermon. Now, this wasn't just Peter's first sermon, though. It was perhaps his greatest sermon, which is truly amazing considering that just 50 days earlier, he had committed the greatest denial of Christ in all of history. Which leads us to a question, what on earth happened to Peter here? What is going on with this guy right now? Well, one thing is for sure, Peter is a changed man. Just think, in 50 days, Peter has changed from this whimpering coward on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion to this brave and outspoken preacher on the day of Pentecost. And unlike his cowardly denials uh, to that servant girl, Peter now thunders the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he does so with conviction and courage. And he does it with the conviction and courage of Elijah. And let me remind you that the climate here in Jerusalem, when he gives this sermon, is not warm, is not inviting, it is still hostile from just killing Jesus, just crucifying Him. And maybe Peter thought to himself, maybe it crossed his mind that what happened to Jesus might just actually happen to me if I stand and I proclaim the name of Christ. And yet, in spite of this, Peter does just that. He rises to his feet and he begins to proclaim this wonderful sermon about Jesus Christ. And this is truly amazing. God has brought this Errant, fearful, timid disciple, all the way back to a place of extraordinary usefulness for his kingdom. Which brings us to a a wonderful lesson for all of us here this morning. Notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Peter's recovery tells us that no matter how great our sins are, no matter how great our failures are, listen to me, forgiveness and restoration is possible through the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that not great news? Listen, if God can forgive and restore a broken vessel like Peter and bring him back to a place of extraordinary usefulness, then surely God can do the same for me and He can do the same for you. Listen, it doesn't matter how great your sins are, how great your failures have been in the past. The grace of God is still greater when we turn to Jesus Christ and seek His forgiveness and repentance of our sin. God wants to use every one of us, just as He used Peter and these disciples here in the early church. We are not beyond the usefulness of God's hands. And isn't that a wonderful lesson about the grace of God? Now, before we move on, let me just quickly recap what happened on the day of Pentecost. Recap what we learned last Sunday, in case you missed it. Pentecost was a Jewish festival or feast in which devout Jews from many, many nations would travel to Jerusalem to offer the first fruits of their crop to God. And so there was never this more cosmopolitan gathering in Jerusalem than the day of Pentecost. In fact, one historian estimates that over a million people would gather in Jerusalem during this day in which we're talking about right now. And so it's in this context, this this gathering of Jews in Jerusalem, that God now pours out his spirit on the 120 disciples. And they begin to proclaim, Luke tells us, the wonderful works of God in all these various foreign languages. Now with that in mind, it's easy to see why God poured out His Spirit on this day, the day of Pentecost, to communicate to those who are there, to communicate even to us here now today, and to communicate it loud and clear that the gospel is for all peoples. The gospel is not just for a select few, it is for everyone, it's for the whole world. And this is an amazing thing, is that all of these people that were gathered here would hear the gospel in their own native heart language, which would then allow them to take the gospel back to their own people groups. Listen, that's why the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, because by impacting these people that were there that day, you could literally impact the world. It was a picture, it was a glimpse that God was giving to these 120 disciples and to the rest that were there, and it's still a picture for us. He's given us a glimpse of how the mandate in Acts 1-8 will be fulfilled. This is the purpose of Pentecost. God is equipping His church on this day with the power of the Spirit for one singular purpose. To proclaim the gospel to all peoples so that God Himself would be glorified among all nations. Now as you can imagine the response to the Spirit's outpouring, to the Spirit's coming was mixed. There were primarily two responses that we looked at last Sunday. Some marveled at this outpouring of the Spirit, and they asked, whatever could this mean? They were genuinely sincere in asking this. They were curious. They were perplexed. But others mocked, mocked what they saw and heard, and saying, oh, they're just full of new wine. Look at Peter's response here, though, in verses 14 and 16. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In other words, Peter tells them, hey, nobody's drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. What is happening here has to do with what the prophet Joel Talked about. And so Peter basically takes them on this Bible study through Joel chapter 2, which stresses how in the last days God will pour out His Spirit on all people. Which, by the way, to them, that was a crazy, radical thought. That was a shift in thinking, for up until now, the Spirit was only given in drops to certain people in their minds, to super-Christians like the priests and the prophets in the Old Testament. But now something was happening. Now something was different on this day, the day of Pentecost. But now the day has come where God is doing what? He is pouring out His Spirit on all people who repent and believe in Jesus Christ. No doubt, something extraordinary has gripped the heart of Peter himself. For it takes conviction, and it takes courage to stand and proclaim the gospel. But Peter exhibits the power of the Spirit as a bold and courageous witness for Christ on this day in particular. Which brings us to another lesson. The Spirit still empowers witnesses for Christ today. Do you believe that? The Spirit still empowers witnesses for Christ today. Listen, here's the principle on this. When the Spirit fills your life, He will also open your mouth to proclaim the gospel with conviction and courage. Here's a question for all of us here to think about. What happens in your life when the Spirit takes control? What happens when the at the moment of salvation, the Spirit dwells within you. You are sealed by the Spirit. And then you begin to yield yourself to the Spirit. You are begin to be—you walk by the Spirit. You're controlled by the Spirit. In other words, He takes control of your life. What happens? How will you know if you are truly filled by the Spirit? Well, the Bible tells us, and we don't have time to get into it, there's a number of things that will happen due to the Spirit in our lives but one thing stands out above all the rest especially here in the book of acts is that you will have power now to proclaim the gospel with conviction and with courage we see this evidence even in acts chapter four verse thirty one In fact it's in your notes look what it says and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and notice what it says next and they spoke the word of God with boldness Listen." That's the pattern you find repeated throughout the book of Acts. As believers are filled with the Spirit of God, they begin to proclaim the gospel with conviction and courage. And this is what we see now here in Peter's sermon in Acts 2. And what I want us to focus on in particular is Peter's conviction as he proclaims the gospel in his first sermon. And here's why. I believe with all my heart... That if, if we, as a church family, as we, as Christ followers here today in the 21st century, if we are going to continue the mission that Jesus began and mandates us in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, repeats it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if we are going to fulfill this mission, if we are going to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we must have strong convictions about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Josh McDowell puts it this way. Having convictions can be defined as being so thoroughly convinced that Christ and His Word are both objectively true and relationally meaningful that you act on your beliefs regardless of the consequences. We are in dire need of people with convictions, gospel convictions in this generation of ours. Listen, gospel convictions is what drives us, It's what motivates us. It's what keeps us from wavering in the face of opposition and hostility and persecution, which is what Peter and these 120 disciples are about to face as Saul leads the charge of persecuting the church. And let me tell you, if they didn't have gospel conviction, they would have wilted in the face of the opposition and persecution and hostility. My greatest fear is that we, the church we are lacking convictions in particular gospel convictions we are raising up generation of teens and children and even young adults who are wishy-washy when it comes to the truth of god's word and the gospel of jesus christ we need gospel convictions in the age in which we live more than ever before, or we will not turn the world upside down. We will not persevere in the face of hostility. Gospel convictions make a difference, just as it did in Peter's life right here. I want to take you a tour of his convictions that we find in his sermon here. Convictions that we need today. Number one, we need conviction about God's Word. We need conviction about God's Word. Peter's been reading the Scriptures again. Isn't that a novel idea? Oh, that we would be like Peter, that we would be people of the Word. In Acts 1, we saw Peter reading Psalms chapter 69 and Psalms 109, and now he's been reading the prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament. Why? Because if Peter's going to understand for himself, and if he's going to explain to others who ask the question, what does this mean, what they had just heard and seen from the outpouring of the Spirit, and if he's going to explain that, then he must go to the Word of God. And notice what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter looked to God's word in the Old Testament to understand what was going on in the present on that day of Pentecost. And by reading God's word, Peter had come to understand that what happened on Pentecost was simply a fulfillment of part of the prophecy of Joel. Peter even quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which describes how God will pour out his Spirit on everyone who believes during the last days in which we live. Here's the point that I want you to grab hold of here. Peter has conviction about God's Word. His conviction is God's Word is infallible. His conviction is God's Word, it's his absolute authority. You see, for Peter, as he quotes Joel, and as he will later in the same sermon, he will quote from the Psalms again, the Bible is God's Word. It has divine authority. It's not merely a record of the spiritual experiences of others. Oh, it may be in one sense a record of what men like Joel and David wrote, but listen to me, God wrote through these men. So that what was written was God's word, no less than it was men's words. In fact, Peter later on when he writes his epistle in 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What spirit? This spirit that is being poured out on Pentecost. Peter has conviction about the word of God, He believes it to be God's infallible Word. And he's immersing himself in it. And he's quoting it as his absolute authority in life and for the church here today. And Peter's example says to us this morning that we need the same conviction about the Word of God. What is your conviction about God's Word? Do you have a conviction about the Word of God? Do you realize the Bible is one book? With one message, with one principal author, God through the Holy Spirit. True, there are 66 books in the Bible with two sections. We know them as the Old Testament and the New Testament, written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors working independent of each other. And yet we bind these up in one book and we call it the Holy Bible. The reason is simple. Because it has one harmonious story. God's plan of redeeming mankind from sin and Satan through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the story of the Bible. And it is a wonderful story. The story of redemption is told on every page in the Bible. And because of this unity, that means we can go to any part of it in our proclamation, in our sharing, in our witnessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter has a conviction of the gospel. We need a conviction of God's Word. So love God's Word. Read God's Word. Trust God's Word as your absolute authority We need conviction about God's word. Do you have it? What is it? Number two, we need conviction about God's plan. We need a conviction about God's plan. You'll notice about halfway through Peter's sermon that he speaks about the death of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, when Peter speaks about his death, he does not attempt to remove or undermine the responsibility of those in Jerusalem who had taken part in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter states in verse 23 that lawless hands or godless men put Jesus to death and that they are fully responsible for their actions. They will be held accountable for their actions. But at the same time, Did you happen to notice what Peter said before that? He says the death of Jesus was by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, there's an overruling providence of God at play even in the death of his son. The hand of God guided history toward that moment. Toward that point, however bad that day was, and in one sense, folks, listen, it was the most evil day in all of history. However bad that day was, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ took place according to the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. You say, what does that mean? It simply means this, that the death of his son did not take God by surprise. It was all part of God's plan of redemption to save sinners like us. Do you see Peter's conviction here? He's absolutely confident about God's plan in history. And with this perspective of the crucifixion in mind, Peter had conviction that even the sinful actions of the ungodly cannot stop God's work of redeeming sinners. It's unstoppable. It's why I've chosen the title for this series that we have. God's plan is unstoppable. Nothing can ultimately undo the sovereign plan and purposes of God. As Peter declares about Jesus in verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It's why we celebrate Easter. Woo! It's all part of God's plan. Think about this with me. This is crucial for Peter himself to have this kind of conviction. What lies ahead in Peter's future? You see, if Jesus has just been crucified, and now Peter is standing up before the men, a crowd of people who were probably many of them the same ones who yelled, Give us Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! And now he's proclaiming the name of Jesus. The future for Peter is not rosy and wonderful. Peter knows. Why? Because Jesus has already warned him and the other apostles that suffering would come. Persecution would come. And so Peter knows that The losses and crosses are ahead in his life. He knows that persecution and suffering is coming for he and these 120 disciples. And it will come upon Peter, in fact, in the next few chapters where he will find himself in prison with John. But in that prison, Peter will comfort himself in the conviction that God is right there with him and that it's all part of God's sovereign plan. How should we understand history? How should we understand what's going on in our world today? When you watch the news and you read of ISIS killing, murdering Christians left and right, how do we understand that? How do you understand when a 20-year-old kid dies of cancer? How do you understand when cancer has taken one of your loved ones? How do you understand the loss of a job? How do you understand what God is doing in this world? We should understand history Past, present, and future from the perspective of His Word. History is His story. History is not our story. History is simply a record of what God is doing and will continue to do to fulfill His plan of redemption, of saving sinners from sin and Satan through His Son, Jesus Christ. Are you part of that story? Or are you still trying to live out your own story? And there's a world of difference in the end of where those two stories end up. When we embrace this perspective, it's life transforming. Every day takes on a sense of purpose and meaning because it's all part of God's plan. God's overruling the end of Jesus' crucifixion gives us hope of His sovereign love even when we're called to endure evil and terrible things in this world and in our lives. Some of you may be here facing a difficulty this very week. Something you'd long to run away from. And here's the conviction. God is in this. He's planned this. He's known about it from eternity past. And you need not fear for one minute that God will leave you or forsake you. It's all part of His glorious, sovereign plan. Is that your conviction? We need a conviction about God's plan. Because if we don't, when we watch the news, we won't know what to believe. When we see trials come into our lives, we won't know how to respond when we have persecution come, we won't know what to do. So if we're going to continue the mission Jesus began, we need conviction about God's word, and we need conviction about God's plan. But we also, number three, we need conviction about Jesus Christ himself. In fact, that's the heart of Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. It's all about Jesus. Peter wants to say that What we've seen in the outpouring of the Spirit points, the Spirit coming points to the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter does in a wonderful way is he traces the life of Jesus through His incarnation to His crucifixion and His resurrection. And then Peter ends with Jesus' ascension to heaven and his exaltation at the right hand of God when he proclaims in verses 32 and 33. Look at this in your notes, in your Bibles. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. You know what Peter's saying he's saying I got conviction about Jesus Christ and that the spirit has come because Jesus has been raised up and exalted to the right hand of the father and do you see that it was to Jesus Christ not to the spirit that Peter's drawing attention to who's he preaching about the spirit or Jesus It's Jesus Christ He spoke of Jesus' life and ministry, His death and resurrection, and finally His exaltation. Why? Because the Spirit's coming is all part of the ongoing ministry of Jesus to empower His followers, even still today, like us, to be His witnesses. This is why the Spirit in the New Testament is often called the, quote, Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit sent by Christ. We also see Peter's conviction about Jesus when he quotes the Joel prophecy here. But notice what Peter does in verse 21. Go back and look at it here. Acts chapter 2 verse 21. Look what Peter says when he quotes Joel. He says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of who? First of all, the Spirit or the Lord? The Lord shall be saved. Now in the Old Testament, that Lord was the divine name, Jehovah Or Yahweh. And Peter says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And who is that Lord? Well, for Peter, it was none other than Jesus Christ. As he goes on to say in the very next verse, verse 23, Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth. That's who this Lord is. Now, again, we don't completely understand this, we don't fully grasp this. But this was radical for Peter to say as a Jew in that day and age. But the Spirit came to enable them to say, Jesus is Lord. That's a radical thing for these early Christians to say. For they were now boldly declaring that in addition to the Father, Jesus was also the one true God. That will get you into a little trouble in this day and age, won't it? But Peter and these early Christians began to declare with conviction and courage that Jehovah Yahweh, the covenant Lord of the Old Testament, is none other than Jesus Christ. That He is sovereign King of heaven and earth. And so for Peter, it's all about Jesus. That's what the Spirit has come to say. It's all about Jesus Christ and the salvation that He offers to all peoples. Which brings us to our fourth conviction. We need conviction about our greatest need. We need conviction about our greatest need. Look how Peter concludes his first sermon in verse 36. Look at this. I want you to see this. He says, therefore. Now, when you come to a therefore, we should all know why that is therefore. Peter's emphasizing something. He's saying, in light of what I've just spoken... In this sermon, he's now coming to his conclusion. In light of that, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, and yet he made him both Lord and Christ. And how do 3,000 people respond to that? Well, they cried out, what shall we do? Man, that is the response we should have every time we hear the name Jesus proclaimed. Preached. What shall we do in response? God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn? What are you teaching me? What are you saying to me? Peter's preaching had shown that things were not right between them and God. Something was desperately out of sorts and they were cut to the heart, Luke says. They were cut to the heart because they saw that God made Jesus Lord in Christ, but they had done what to Him? They had killed Him. They had crucified Him. In other words, they were utterly at odds with God. And by the way, that is the way we are born. We are born enemies of God. We are born at odds with God. And they were living against His will. They were out of step with His Word and His Son. And God was one way, and they were living another way. And that is exactly like us before we come to Christ. Peter's preaching about Jesus had pierced their hearts and it exposed their greatest need. It was like a dagger thrusting them in the side and it left them crying out, "What shall we do?" What they desperately needed, and folks, what we desperately need, what our world desperately needs, what your coworker, your friends, your neighbor People that you come in contact, what they desperately need is what God, in amazing grace, was ready to give. Forgiveness of sin. They had offended God. They had violated God. They had disobeyed God. And their greatest need was forgiveness. Which is exactly what God offers them and us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And just when you thought Peter was done with his sermon, he gives an exclamation point in verse 40. He says, be saved from this perverse or crooked generation. Listen, the most perverse thing about our generation today, you know what it is? The most perverse thing about our generation today is that we have created ways of, quote, salvation without God. without His Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, without the need for the forgiveness of sin. Which means we don't have to face up to our responsibility of sin. Therefore, it's also without hope. But Peter declares on the basis of God's Word that there is a God who gave His Son to die on the cross for our sins, and in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But folks, listen, we need more than God's forgiveness, believe it or not. We also need the gift of God's Spirit. Oh, how we desperately need the Spirit. We desperately need God Himself to come into our lives where sin once reigned. We need a personal relationship with God through His Spirit. We desperately need the Spirit's wisdom and guidance in living as Christ followers. Do we not? We desperately need the fruit of the Spirit demonstrated in our relationships, in our families, our marriages, in our workplace, you name it such as love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, and self-control, we desperately, oh, how we desperately need the Spirit's power to follow Christ, to be witnesses for Christ, to persevere in Christ. In other words, we desperately need what we cannot give to ourselves, but what the Spirit of God can only give to us. We need His power. And that's what God gives to us when we're cut to the heart over our sin and we respond what shall we do and notice Peter's answer in verse 38 then Peter said to them repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins or for the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit Peter urges us to do two things here one he urges us to repent over our sins. Now, I want you to gather this in your mind. Repentance, that word. Repentance is a word of great hope. I want you to connect the word repentance with hope. Because repentance is an invitation from God to turn from your sins to God so that you can be forgiven. And is that not hope? So repentance is more than just feeling sorry for your sins. It means changing your mind and your heart about God, about yourself, about your sin, about your need for Jesus Christ as your says as your Savior. In fact, Jesus spoke to Paul about this, quote, turning that leads to forgiveness of sin later on in Acts 26, verse 18, where he says, I send you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That's repentance. That it's, it's basically this. It's in faith, turning from darkness to light, from Satan to God, from sin to Jesus Christ. But 2 Peter urges us to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now there's a big mistake to avoid here. Some groups teach that water baptism is part of the means by which God forgives sin. In other words, that faith is not enough to gain forgiveness, that you must be baptized before you can be forgiven. But I believe Peter means something like this. I don't have time to show you, but all through Acts, this supports this. He's saying something like this, Receive the forgiveness of your sins by repenting and by believing in the name of Jesus Christ, which you now signify through your baptism. In other words, faith in Jesus is the essential means of receiving God's forgiveness, and baptism is simply the external expression of that faith, in Jesus Christ. Here's our conviction as a church. We believe as a church body, as Glenwood, that the means of receiving the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit is the two-sided spiritual act of repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. We also believe that water baptism is the outward expression of this repentance and faith, and it publicly identifies us with Jesus Christ and his body or the church. That is the New Testament way to follow Christ. You repent, you believe, and you express that in water baptism. And you know what? 3,000 folks did it that day. These four convictions about God's word, about God's plan, about Jesus Christ, and about our greatest need, though, are motivated by this last conviction. We need conviction about urgency in the last days. Peter does something very interesting when he quotes the prophecy of Joel, he slightly changes the wording. And by the way, he does it by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't do it on his own. In the Old Testament book of Joel, it actually reads in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and it shall be afterwards. And Peter interprets now what Joel meant by the afterwards, and he uses the phrase the last days. You say, what is the last days? The last days is the time period between the two comings of Jesus Christ. Now the whole world celebrates the first coming, which is what? What's the first coming? Christmas! Okay, you guys are tracking with me. I like that. I know it's almost time to dismiss. Hang with me. And what Peter's saying here is that we are now living in the last days before the second coming of Christ the of which is unknown to us and even to Jesus, only the Father knows. And there's a sense of urgency here when Peter says this. The need to repent of our sins, folks, is urgent. The need to experience the forgiveness of sins is urgent. The need to be right with God is urgent. The need to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation is urgent. Therefore, the need for us as a church and as individuals to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ is what? Urgent. And it's urgent because these days in which we live and are living are the last days. Wow! Wow! What conviction and what courage we see here in Peter's first sermon and what we see could be summarized in what I would call the Peter Principle. Look at this and we'll close. Gospel conviction plus bold courage equals a powerful witness for Christ. Just look how Luke gives us this picture of Peter's conviction and courage here. Scan over these verses in your notes with me. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. And then he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. And then in verse 40, and with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Can't you just hear the conviction in his voice? Can't you just see the courage in his heart as Peter now proclaims the gospel? May the same be true of us. May people hear gospel conviction in our voices, and may people see bold courage in our hearts as we proclaim the gospel. Oh Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to be powerful witnesses for Christ by the power of Your Spirit. And to do so with conviction and courage. Let's bow our heads and pray. And as we pray, and as that comes, to prepare for our response time. Listen, let me ask you, what what is your conviction about these areas? What's your conviction about God's Word? God's plan? God's Son? Our greatest need and the urgency in the last days? I would encourage you to think through what your conviction is about these things and to do so in light of what God's Word has to say. But perhaps the first conviction we need is to be broken over our sin, to be cut to the heart, and to repent of our sins. And so let me encourage you to do that even now while we respond, while Zach sings, to run to the cross And to ask Jesus to forgive you and to let his power reign in you.